What's up guys, welcome back to another episode of Around the Arc, I'm Jamie, thrilled to have you here as always. Now, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get right into it today with um, the first topic that I want to, wanted to talk about, and that is a player that has been a pretty major disappointment over the over the past couple of seasons. I'm talking about a uh, former number one overall pick who, for a while, seemed to be on a path to becoming a real superstar in the NBA, but in the past couple of years, he's just sort of fallen off and has become a downright bad player. And in case you didn't know already, I'm talking about Andrew Wiggins, now, he's a guy who, like I said, former number one overall pick, who was one of the most hyped draft prospects in recent memory. And you look at what he's become today, and he's he's now arguably a worse player than he was in his rookie season. You know, and at this point, his career now kind of sits at a crossroads, and he kind of holds the Minnesota Timberwolves' future kind of on his shoulders, really. So what I wanted to do here, I wanted to go all the way back to the beginning and take a look at the sort of rise and fall of Andrew Wiggins and then explore what f- what the future may hold for him if he can still salvage his career. So let's just get right into it. So going back to the beginning, very start, it, seem- it seemed like Andrew Wiggins was born to be a professional basketball player. I mean, he certainly had the genetic makeup for it. Um, like his Both his parents were professional athletes. His mom was an Olympic silver medalist, track and field star. And his dad actually played six seasons in the NBA as a, as a shooting, car, shooting guard. And it's fair to say that Wiggins obtained much of his parents' athletic prowess, given that he would sort of blossom into a six foot eight NBA small forward with athleticism that has been compared at times to Michael Jordan. That is that is no joke. In fact, the Canadian-born Wiggins was even given the nickname Maple Jordan. And this was before he even came into the NBA, so that can give you a bit of an idea of how hyped he was. And the buzz surrounding this guy, it was more than just a nickname and some crazy hops. I mean, he was he was one of the most touted high school prospects since LeBron James. And he would carry that momentum into college where, uh, you know, playing for a Kansas City team that also featured Joel Embiid, as a side note. Um, During his college, he would become an All-American as well. And all of this would culminate with Wiggins being selected number one overall in the 2014 NBA draft by the by the Cleveland Cavaliers at the time, but then he would be traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves. And at this point, it still seemed very clear that his best days were ahead of him. Now, getting into his the beginning of his NBA career, um, despite a pretty slow start to his rookie season, Andrew Wiggins would finish the season pretty strong. And 
end up easily winning rookie of the year uh putting up averages of about 17 points four and a half rebounds two assists a steal and half a block per game on about 44 percent shooting now those are not world-breaking numbers by any stretch but to most people at the time it still seemed only a matter of time before wiggins became like the next great nba wing and in year two he would break the 20-point threshold, and he'd do it on improved scoring efficiency as well. He'd then carry this offensive momentum into his third season, where at just 21 years old, he would put up nearly 24 points a night, which is a feat only accomplished by 13 players in past league history at this young of an age. So although, although he hadn't, Although he'd shown little growth in terms of his all-around game, Wiggins' scoring prowess was putting him in some pretty impressive company at this time. Plus, he still had a ton of time ahead of him to continue, you know, working, improving, honing his craft, going from just a scoring star, which is what he was at the time, to a full-blown superstar. In fact, his head coach at the time, Tom Thibodeau, said that Wiggins was just scratching the surface of his of his full potential and at that point most people would definitely believe him and based on what Wiggins had shown up until that point we had no reason not to believe it quite frankly then things start to take a turn for the worse in the off-season leading up to Andrew Wiggins' fourth season, the Timberwolves made a big splash and traded for Jimmy Butler. Now, this addition uh, elevated the Wolves' uh, elevated the Wolves' kind of reputation in the Western Conference, with many expecting them to finish as a top-four team in the conference. And now, the potential of improved team success seemingly just over the horizon. This sort of projected to be the year that Wiggins fully cemented himself as as a budding star, and he looked to prove that he could be a, a vital part of a borderline contending team. But things didn't really go as planned. For the first half or two thirds of the season, Minnesota was, in fact, a top-four team in the West, uh, although that would end up being derailed a bit by a Jimmy Butler injury. But this success that they were having wasn't thanks to Wiggins' stardom. It was actually quite the opposite. Um, You look at his numbers, and Andrew's scoring did expectedly take a drop uh, with the improved talent around him. But what was more surprising here was the fact that his efficiency dropped across the board as well. You know, his free throw attempts nearly cut in half. And on top of that, he didn't show any improvement whatsoever in any other area of his game. You know, throughout that season, there appeared to be a growing rift between Jimmy Butler and the rest of the Wolves players, especially Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins. As such, a lot of the blame for Wiggins' regression in in year four was placed on Butler's shoulders, you know, fairly or unfairly, on account of him being a a quote-unquote bad teammate and for questioning Andrew's toughness and work ethic, essentially calling him soft. 
So when Jimmy would be traded to Philadelphia only a few games into the 2018-19 season, people expected Wiggins to kind of bounce back and become the player that he just a year prior seemed primed to be. But again, the the complete opposite happened. His his box score numbers did increase slightly, but his scoring was still nowhere near the level it had been in his third season. And also his scoring efficiency had reached a new low. You know, since since coming into the league, Wiggins had been a volume scorer. And last season, for players who attempted at least 16 shots per game, he ranked at or near the very bottom in almost every major shooting category, including field goal percentage, two-point percentage, effective field goal percentage, true shooting percentage, and free throw percentage. In short, he became arguably the worst shooter in the NBA. He was a he was a slightly better three point shooter, but he still shot below league average from out there at a shade under thirty four percent. In fact, he was only an above average three point shooter from the corners. He struggled from everywhere else. When it came to shooting at the rim, Wiggins shot around about fifty seven percent, which ranked him right near the bottom for guys who attempted at least four and a half shots per game at the basket. Now, to put his 50, 57% into perspective, the only guys to finish at a worse rate than him at the rim were all small guards. And if you look at other uh, elite wing players, guys like LeBron, Pascal Siakam, and Ben Simmons, those guys converted in the high 60s or even low 70s in terms of their um, efficiency uh, finishing at the rim. Now, if you take a step out from the basket into what you could call floater range, Wiggins was, again, one of the least efficient finishers, and it this didn't get any prettier in the mid-range either, which is where a lot of Wiggins' shot attempts came from as well. We'll get into that a bit later as well. So, what exactly has gone wrong for Andrew Wiggins? What can what can explain this kind of inexplicable and unexpected regression? Well, as it turns out, there are several pretty clear explanations, so I'm just going to get into a few of them just now. So, looking at Wiggins, it's... First off, it's clear that he has the physical tools to be a star in the NBA, but one of the main reasons that he's been such a disappointment in the past couple of years, especially, is the fact that he doesn't really make use of his insane athleticism in any area of his game, which contributes to him being a really poor all-around player. You know, he's been he's been a major disappointment on defense thus far in his NBA career. He's a bad rebounder for a six foot eight small forward. Uh, he only gets to the line around four times per game. This is in the two years since his third season. He struggles to finish at the rim or under any sort of defensive pressure, and he doesn't really create for his teammates either. Now, that is quite a list of shortcomings, and yes, they are in large part due to Wiggins' apparent inability to fully utilize his athletic gifts, but 
The other aspect of this is the mental side of things, where Andrew has also received his fair share of criticism. You know, he, he appears to lack the mentality of a real NBA star. You know, he's been criticized for not showing a great deal of passion for the game, for the game of basketball, as well as not showcasing a very strong desire to win and improve. And because of this, his work ethic is also questioned frequently. And due to his drop-off in production, that's become an increased concern in the past couple of seasons. Now, all of this produces a somewhat lackluster and nonchalant demeanor when he's on the court where Wiggins rarely seems engaged for a full 48-minute contest. And whether it's due to this apparent lack of drive or something else, it's clear to both basketball analysts and knowledgeable fans that Wiggins also has a pretty poor basketball IQ. Now, let me elaborate on this a little bit. His defensive struggles are due to a combination of things, you know, including a lack of physicality, a, a low motor, and poor defensive awareness. Now, his poor awareness and instincts make him somewhat unreliable as both an off-ball and help defender, while his low motor and lack of physicality can hinder his on-ball prowess as well. Uh, his struggles on the glass are, again, due to a lack of physicality, a low motor again, and poor positional awareness. You know, Wiggins often seems unaware of where the ball is going to come down following a miss, and he also, because he lacks the motor and physicality, he doesn't frequently body his man up and box out properly. Uh you know, as as previously noted, Wiggins has also become an inefficient and wildly inconsistent volume scorer, which has a lot to do with this sort of substandard basketball IQ. I mean, first off, he has very poor shot selection. You know, he settles for way too many mid-range jumpers, which, as I noted earlier, he isn't very good at making anyway. You know, he doesn't attack the basket nearly enough, and as a result, we've seen his <clears throat> we've seen his free throw attempts plummet from around seven attempts per game a few years ago down to four where he's at now. And when he does attack the basket, Wiggins has a tendency to just kind of flail and force up bad low percentage shots. Now, as well as hurting his efficiency, this makes him a lot more predictable to guard since he rarely seems to have any sort of plan or go-to finishing move around the rim. And finally, another thing that hurts Wiggins' scoring efficiency, especially on jumpers, is his poor footwork. You know, his, his messy and muddled footwork often leads to off-balance looks where he, he fails to get adequate lift and elevation in order to get a clean look at the basket. And I think this is one reason why he struggles to make shots when he's contested, you know, with a, with a hand in his face. So there you have it. Those are a few explanations for what has caused Andrew Wiggins' decline in, in the past couple of years. And... Notice how I haven't mentioned any injury problems. 
that's because Wiggins hasn't had any, which is what makes this drop off all the more concerning. You know, in fact, he's only missed nine games in his first five seasons. So where does this leave us? To sum up, many people have already pretty much given up on Andrew Wiggins, labeling him as an underachiever, a disappointment, or even a bust in, in some cases. And But there are still those that are holding out hope for Wiggins to revive his career and get back on track to stardom. Now, despite everything I've talked about, I happen to be one of those people, but even I would admit that this upcoming season is a sort of make-or-break year for for Andrew Wiggins. You know, after being labeled as one of the as one of the best young teams with an extremely bright future just a couple of years ago, the Minnesota Timberwolves now find themselves facing a very unclear and questionable future. You know, they have a budding superstar in Carl Anthony Towns, but in this sort of emerging superstar duo era of the NBA, he won't be able to carry the T-Wolves alone. Therefore, you could say the future of this franchise now rests solely on the slender shoulders of Maple Jordan himself. Now, maybe Wiggins can come back motivated and re-energized with a newfound love for the game and a hunger to prove all of his doubters wrong. If that's the case, we could see a new and improved version of Wiggins that puts forth his best season to date next season. On the other hand, we could just be in store to witness more of the same. You know, inefficient, one-dimensional play that fails to resemble the borderline all-star that we witnessed in 2017. Apart from when he faces Oklahoma City, of course, because for whatever reason, Wiggins always plays like a superstar against the Thunder. I don't know why, but... Anyway, yeah, what what do you guys expect from Andrew Wiggins next season? Are you on the sort of hopeful side or are you of the opinion that he's already, you know, sort of a, a done deal and that we should just give up on him? Let me know on Twitter at AroundTheArcPod. I'd love to hear your thoughts on there. Now, let's move on. Okay, so the second and final topic that I wanted to cover today is basically looking at every NBA team and kind of looking at the one burning question for for each squad heading into next season. So because we've got to cover all 30 teams, this is going to be a little bit of a rapid-fire one. So let's let's just get right into it. So although although the 2019-2020 uh, season doesn't... We're still a ways away from it beginning... After such a chaotic summer and free agency period, there has been plenty of change and thus plenty of questions heading into heading into the new season. You know, we've we're seemingly at the end of the super teams era, and as I, as I mentioned a minute ago, we seem to be heading into a super duo era. Um, and as a result, this is going to be the first NBA season in quite a long time where there's not going to be a clear number one favorite to win the championship. In fact, you could make a case that there are at least seven or eight different teams that enter this season 
thinking that they have a legitimate shot at a title. So, yeah, let's let's just dive right into right into the first team, which is the Atlanta Hawks. Now, the the main burning question I think Atlanta will face this upcoming season is who will their third option be? Who will kind of emerge as their third, not star, but uh, their third best player? Let's say. So you could you could make the case that Atla- the Hawks are kind of a dark horse candidate to make the playoffs in the in the Eastern Conference next season, but if they are going to make that push, they are going to need a third option to emerge. You know they're already hoping that both Trey Young and John Collins will build off of their terrific seasons from last year, but after losing guys like. Torian Prince and Kent Bazemore in the offseason, Atlanta are going to need one of their wings, most likely, to step up into that kind of third star role. Now, you look at guys like Kevin Herter, who, who seems like he could be in store for a breakout season. If not him, you then look at one of the Hawks' rookies this year, either Cameron Reddish or DeAndre Hunter. Either of those three guys have the potential to kind of become the, the third star for this team. But either way, the Hawks are going to be a very young, interesting team next season to watch. And no matter what happens, if they make the playoffs or not, you know, they're going to be an entertaining league pass team to watch for sure. Next team, the Boston Celtics. Now the question for them is how are they going to fill the void left by Al Horford? Now you may think, oh, how are they going to fill the void left by Kyrie Irving? But they already went out and got Kemba Walker in free agency. So that will kind of take care of that. Now, while the Celtics did seem to recover pretty nicely after losing Kyrie, like I said, signing Kemba, you can't really make the same case for replacing Horford. You know, Horford was kind of the leader of this team. He was a tremendous locker room guy. And if you factor in his tremendous defense as well, he was arguably the best two-way player that they had on their roster. Now, you look at their off-season moves, they've essentially replaced Horford with Ennis Cantor. While at the same time, they, they, they could also be hoping that either Daniel Tice or one of their other guys does take another step in their progression. But either way, this isn't exactly an ideal replacement for one of the most well-rounded big men in the NBA. I've said in previous episodes, I do expect this Boston team to be a, a better team in terms of chemistry and things. I think this is a much better suited squad to Brad Stevens. Um, and also I think guys like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and maybe even Gordon Hayward, those guys are now in a better position to break out and have bounce back seasons from what was a disappointing campaign a year ago. So while that isn't, you know, replacing Al Horford, there are plenty of other encouraging signs uh, for this for this Celtics team heading into next year. Next up, the Brooklyn Nets. Now, the main question I have for them is, can Kyrie Irving be the leader for the Nets, even without Kevin Durant? Now, in the weeks sort of leading up to free agency, many were pretty 
perplexed and surprised that the Brooklyn Nets were, you know, creeping up the list of possible destinations for both Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And then on the day of free agency, both formally announced that that's exactly where they would be signing. You know, the the turnaround that we've seen from the Brooklyn Nets over the last five years has been remarkable, to say the least. You know, which does make the fact that Durant will likely miss all of next season due to that Achilles injury, that makes it all the more disappointing. You know, we'll have to wait another season to see, to really properly see how good this Nets team can be. But sticking to this season... The main question revolves around Kyrie's ability to be a leader and be the leader that this young team needs. And this was Kyrie's big knock in Boston. You know, he wasn't the leader that the young core needed, you know. Nevertheless, Kyrie will have a new opportunity to sort of change the narrative surrounding him and win back some of his naysayers. And But for the sake of the Nets... They're going to need a very well-behaved and productive Kyrie this season to even, you know, be able to make any sort of noise in the Eastern Conference playoffs this year. It, do- it does probably still help that Durant will be in the locker room and present around the team, you'd imagine. But until he proves otherwise, the question is going to be, is Kyrie up for the challenge? Next up for the Charlotte Hornets after an incredibly terrible offseason, to say the least. I guess the one question you could have heading into their season is, is Terry Rozier going to be the real deal? Now, I've talked, to, I've talked in previous episodes about how, you know, it's pretty clear that was, a, that was a pretty bad signing bringing Terry Rozier on board. Not that he can't play. But you look at the amount of money that they paid him, you know, it's three years, 59 million or something. And that's way too much for a guy that has never shot above 40% from the field for a season in his career, is not the best playmaker for a point guard. And, you know, I guess the one thing that he has going for him is the playoff run that he had two seasons ago where he did kind of break out and show show signs of being a quality starting point guard. So I guess that's the hope that Charlotte fans are going to need to hang on to, is that he can regain that form. And he'll certainly be given the opportunity to, given that Charlotte has next to no other offensive options surrounding him. So he is going to get a ton of shots, get the opportunity to put up a bunch of, a bunch of stats. But other than that... Um, not really much to be hopeful about for for Charlotte fans next year. For the Chicago Bulls next up, uh, I've got Can Levine and Lowry Markkinen involve into a lethal combo in the East, in the Eastern Conference. So since the Derrick Rose era came to an end in Chicago, the Bulls have been somewhat of an afterthought in the Eastern Conference. They, they've made the playoffs once, I think, um, not really made much noise, and they have yet to prove that they are on a championship course at all. However, over the past couple of seasons, they've, began, they've begun to assemble a pretty decent young core. 
you know, it, it began with the Jimmy Butler trade in which they received Zach Levine in a draft pick, which ended up to be Larry Markinen. And now both of these guys have, especially last season, shown their star potential. And, you know, if both of them can play at a high level this upcoming season and further their development, which I think they both can, you know, I've, I've talked about this briefly before. I think the Bulls can emerge as a sort of dark horse playoff threat. Um, you know, as one of the lower seeds in the Eastern Conference. Uh, they've also got Wendell Carter Jr., who I talked about a couple of episodes ago, I think, as a potential breakout candidate this season. And they also drafted Kobe White in this year's NBA draft, who, you know, projects to be uh, a pretty decent scoring point guard in the NBA. All that, All that being said, the success of the Chicago Bulls is really predicated on the play of both Lowry Markinen and Zach Levine. So it's going to be interesting to see how that how that combo, how that duo develops this upcoming season. For the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, can Colin Sexton and Darius Garland sort of figure it out and play well together as the, the Cavs' new backcourt? So in this past NBA draft, the Cavs elected to take the the next best player approach when they selected Darius Garland with the number four overall pick. You know, this came as a surprise to some, um, given that Cleveland took Colin Sexton, another point guard in the draft prior. Um, But if you look at their talent alone, there's no denying that Sexton and Garland will be good and perhaps great guards in the future. But the big question is whether or not these two guys can coexist on the court. You know, if if they can, the Cavs will be a pretty a pretty fun team to follow in the Eastern Conference, although they, they definitely won't win many games, you know. But if it on the other hand, if it doesn't work out, I think Cleveland are going to be or they're going to have to pick one of these guys and then trade the other. It might not be this season. It might it might be uh, next off season. Um, we we don't really know when, but just based on their potential alone at this point, if it doesn't work out, if I were Cleveland, I would stick with Darius Garland and maybe look at trading Colin Sexton because I think over time, I think. Garland has the higher ceiling, and you definitely get um, plenty of trade value for Colin Sexton as well. But that's looking too far into the future. question is, can they coexist together? Now, the Dallas Mavericks is our next team, and I think the most burning question for them is, what will we see from Kristaps Porzingis next year? Now, it was, it, it was quite a surprise move when, when the Mavs traded for Kristaps Porzingis at last year's trade, trade deadline. However, there is a lot of excitement now building in Dallas surrounding both Kristaps Porzingis and Luka Doncic, the reigning rookie of the year, as the next sort of great duo in, in, in the NBA. Now, the problem... Or the, the main question arises from the fact that we haven't seen Kristaps play for almost two years now. You know, coming off of a serious knee injury, an ACL tear, you know, it's not easy to predict what we're going to see from Porzingis. 
You know, he's a seven-footer with freakish athleticism. But will he have all that athleticism back immediately, or will it take some time, you know, to sort of wear off the rust and get back into game shape? You know, will he have the same leaping and lateral mobility uh, that he had before the injury? You know, if if he does come back as somewhat the same player that we saw in New York... The Mavs could be a threat to make a play to make a playoff berth, even in the Western Conference. But that's really up in the air at the moment. I think we should we should lower our expectations somewhat for Przingis and just expect him to be a productive player. I don't think we should expect him to become a star again immediately after coming back. I think give him some time, give him a couple of months to work his way back into game shape and to wear off the rust and then then see where we're at, you know. I think he, he's definitely still a future star, but it may not happen immediately like many Mavs fans are, are going to expect or want from him. Denver Nuggets next up. Their question is, do they have enough star power? to compete with the other top teams in the Western Conference. You know, after uh, an amazing regular season a year ago and a pretty impressive playoff run, expectations are inevitably going to be raised for the Denver Nuggets heading into the 2020 season. But But the main question mark sort of potentially holding this team back is whether or not they have the star power to compete you know, with the Lakers who have LeBron and AD or the Clippers with Kawhi and Paul George, the Rockets with Westbrook and Harden, and even you could throw the Jazz in there as well with Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, and Rudy Gobert, you know. I mean, for the average fan, they probably can't name too many Nuggets players beyond, you know, Paul Millsap, Nikola Jokic, and maybe Jamal Murray. But with that said... The Nuggets do have some budding stars on their roster, namely Jokic, who I think can become an MVP caliber player, but also Jamal Murray, who's coming off his sort of his best season so far and a breakout performance in the playoffs, which uh, bodes well for him going into this season. And you could even you could even mention Michael Porter Jr., who, if you take away the tremendous in- injury problems that he's had. You could make the case that he has the highest or second highest ceiling on this entire team. So if he can stay healthy, you know, he's going to be a guy that we're going to need to talk about down the road. So, you know, with a lot of eyes on the Nuggets this season and with increased expectations, you know, the question is whether they're going to be able to live up to that hype and compete in what is now an incredibly deep and competitive Western Conference. Next up, the Detroit Pistons. And has this team reached its ceiling now? now? The Pistons had a somewhat surprising season a year ago as they managed to sneak into the playoffs, you know, with not many people expecting them to make much noise. You know, they, all, they have one of the best front courts in the entire NBA in Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond, provided Blake can stay healthy for an entire season. But the big question for Detroit heading into next season is whether or not they can still improve and become more than just a bottom-tier playoff team. Now, Blake is going to be really good, provided he stays healthy. But unless this 
team gets some significant help in the backcourt especially, I don't really know how much they can improve. Unless, you know, Reggie Jackson has a career year or, I don't know, they have an unforeseen breakout player on the roster that we don't that we're not really aware of yet i don't know how many more games this team can win i did think it was a good signing to get Derek rose provided he can you know be the same player that we saw a year ago which was the the best season that we that we saw from d rose since his since his first injury so i do think that will help things it helps the backcourt depth and it does you know give uh Drummond and Griffin some some help in the backcourt but yeah, until I, until I see otherwise I'm not sold on Detroit being anything more than uh sort of bottom tier playoff team now moving on to Golden State and the main question for them is can Steph carry this team once again like he once did uh the Warriors had a really rough end to the season and start of the offseason as well. You know, they lost Clay Thompson to a torn ACL. They lost KD to a torn Achilles, both in the NBA Finals. They then lost the NBA Finals. And to top everything off, they lost Kevin Durant on the first day of free agency. That being said, though, the Warriors did manage to recover somewhat by receiving D'Angelo Russell in a sign-in trade with the Nets. Um, which, you know, was one of the more surprising moves of the offseason, but I th- I think it was a good move. Uh, but then uh, the Warriors, they also lost Andre Iguodala, uh, Sean Livingston as well, although both guys were showing age at, at this point, but especially Iggy, he still showed that he could contribute um, when it mattered most. Uh, but now the big question for this team heading into next season will revolve around... Steph Curry and whether or not he can you know become the or he can regain his MVP form from a from a few seasons ago and also whether he can receive enough help from guys like D'Angelo Russell and Draymond Green to sort of be right there in the in the playoff race in the Western Conference and become a sort of fringe contender especially once Clay comes back probably after the all-star break you know, we've seen Curry do it before. Even when Durant was on the team, we've seen it in spurts when when Durant was was out of action. Um, but now Curry will need to become that guy, that superstar, that MVP, and the leader that his teammates need on a night-by-night basis. And the success of this team will fall directly on his shoulders. And that's why some are, you know... Uh, picking Curry to even win the MVP award next year, but um, either way, it's going to be it's going to be fun to watch him, you know, being the the sole superstar on a team again. Next up, the Houston Rockets. Now I've talked about this at length in an episode a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to get too too into it uh, today. If you want. Um, if you want more details, you can go back and check out that episode where this is talking about whether the Russell Westbrook, James Harden backcourt will work. And uh, now there are there are 
positives, given that the two have played together before, uh, they have a good relationship off the court, and they clearly want this thing to work. But then there are obvious question marks, the fact that they're both incredibly ball-dominant. Westbrook is a really poor shooter, neither is much of a threat when playing off the ball, and so on and so on. So um, it's really up in the air how well this is going to, to work out. Um but like I said, if you want to hear me go in-depth into this topic, you can go and check out the podcast episode from a few weeks ago. Now moving on to the Indiana Pacers. Now the main question for them, I think, is can one or both of either Malcolm Brogdon or Miles Turner make the leap and become a star next to Victor Oladipo? Now... I think I think the Pacers had one of the better off seasons this year. You know, while they may not have landed a Kevin Durant or a Kawhi Leonard or a Kyrie Irving, the Pacers did get better by adding guys like Malcolm Brogdon, TJ Warren, and Jeremy Lamb as well. Um, however, if the Pacers are going to make a leap in the standings and make some real noise in the Eastern Conference this season, they're going to need one of their young guys to step up in a big way and become a star, basically. You know, assuming Victor Oladipo returns to his all-star level, which I am more than confident that he will, um, the Pacers need a number two guy. And I think the two most likely contenders for that role are either Malcolm Brogdon or Miles Turner. Now I've talked about Miles Turner a lot in in past in past for the past two or three years now. Miles Turner has been a breakout candidate, but to this point it hasn't happened offensively. But you still see he has the skills to be a sort of twenty and ten guy on offense as well as being one of the best rim protectors in the league as well. And then with Malcolm Brogdon, we've seen him thrive as sort of a, a systems guy, a, a a really good role player. And we saw it especially last season when he was healthy, you know, averaging over sixteen points a game on 50% from the field, 40% from deep, and 90% from the free throw line. So he's an incredibly skilled and efficient offensive player. Now the question becomes, can he remain that effective in an increased offensive role? So that's going to be something to keep an eye on going into next year. Uh, the Los Angeles Clippers, who many would dub the winners of the offseason, and they wouldn't be wrong, but... Uh, uh, a sort of under-the-radar question for them will be how much time is Paul George going to miss? Um, you know, despite being f- uh, arguably the favorites to win the NBA championship, there are questions surrounding Paul George, Paul George's health to start the season, you know. Uh, George, in case you didn't know, underwent soldier, shoulder surgery this offseason, and he is expected to miss the start of the of the regular season. You know, uh, reportedly he could miss even the first six weeks of the season, which could be a big blow um, for where the Clippers end up in the standings, you know. Um, the good news is that Kawhi Leonard is also on the Clippers and LA has a very deep roster, so they should have enough to at least stay afloat until Paul George returns, but we won't know just how good this team is going to be until 
they're back at full health. And another thing to note, if PG does miss, you know, six to eight weeks to start the year, you know, worst case scenario, bear in mind when he does come back, it is going to take a little bit of time for him to, you know, integrate himself into the offense and develop chemistry with the other guys, especially, you know, Kawhi Leonard. So, although, you know, in sort of May or June, the Clippers may be, you know, in prime position to win it all, there there are some questions heading into the start of the season. Now, the other team in LA, the Lakers, are another winner of this year's free agency. The question for them is, will Anthony Davis be enough? You know, when the Lakers signed LeBron last summer, I'm sure no one envisioned the team missing the playoffs. Uh, now, of course, that was in part to do to LeBron's injury that caused him to miss over a month of action. And, you know, all the AD trade drama and the, uh, you know, lack of chemistry and all, all that sort of stuff. Every Lots of different things played into them missing the playoffs last year. But nevertheless, it was a really disappointing outcome. And, but... This summer, they did get their guy. They did add Anthony Davis via trade, uh, giving up Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, and Josh Hart in the process. Process. Now, while you can... I would definitely say that LA certainly didn't lose this trade, but they did give up a lot to get him. Um, now, with... LeBron James and Anthony Davis as their top two players, you can easily make the argument that the Lakers have the best duo in the NBA, and I would happen to agree with that. Um, the big question for this team, though, entering this season is whether or not the team has enough complementary parts to compete with the other juggernauts, mainly the Clippers, you know, to stay afloat. They did make some nice signings, I thought, adding guys like Danny Green, Avery Bradley, Quinn Cook, DeMarcus Cousins at the time, although we know that he's now out with injury, but they did replace him with Dwight Howard, who I think if he can, uh, you know, avoid being a locker room distraction and buy into his role, he can actually be a very valuable addition to this team. So, again, we won't know until we see the Lakers play, but it's going to be very interesting to see if they can win it all, at least complete, compete to win it all with just LeBron and AD and then basically a bunch of a bunch of other guys. Uh, next up for the Memphis Grizzlies, I've uh, got Can Jamarant be the team's next franchise player? Now, not all that long ago, the Memphis Grizzlies were uh, were in the Western Conference Finals. However, since that season, the Grizzlies have been on a slow decline. And last year, they officially ended the sort of grit and grind era when they traded Mark Gasol. And then in the offseason, they traded Mike Conley to the Jazz. So now they're in complete rebuilding mode. And the question for the team this season revolves around their new draft pick, Jamarant. Uh, who they took second overall in, in this year's NBA draft after Zion Williamson was taken number one. Now, Morant has essentially been given the keys to the franchise right away. He's going to be the starter from day one. He's going to get a ton of minutes, a ton of opportunity, a ton of experience. And, you know, he was he was incredibly impressive during his sophomore season last year in college, um, which made him rise up the draft boards. And the Grizzlies need that guy in order to raise 
the ceiling of of the franchise you know he needs he needs to be the sort of main piece of their rebuild along with i think jaron jackson jr but if these guys can both reach their full potential the grizzlies will be a very very good team going forward but um it's going to be very interesting to see what jamarant does in his rookie year and now the miami heat a player who I talked about a couple of episodes ago. Will Bam Adebayo make the jump that this team is hoping he can make? So again, like I, talk, I talked about this a couple of episodes ago, so I won't dive too deep into it. But basically, Bam Adebayo is one of the kind of breakout candidates this upcoming season. And I expect him to have a big year now as the full-time starter in Miami. And I think depending on the kind of individual success he has this season, that will play a big role in where Miami finishes in the in the playoff race in the Eastern Conference, especially now that they've had a Jimmy Butler. You know, but I think the, the development of BAM is sort of the most important factor to the team's success going into next year. For the Milwaukee Bucks, we're looking at can Giannis build off of his MVP season? I think the scariest part about Giannis is you could already make the case that he is the best player in the NBA, or he's at least a top five, top three player already, and that is without a reliable jump shot. We saw him lead his team to the best record in the NBA a year ago, win the MVP, and lead his team to the conference finals, and that was all without having a real jump shot. And that's what makes Giannis so scary, is the fact that he's already so good but there is all there is also one major area of his game that still needs serious improvement. So if Giannis can come back with a somewhat reliable outside shot next year, I mean, I think it's a lock for him to win MVP back-to-back because the level that this guy could reach if he gets a jump shot is almost unimaginable. You know, is, is, that, is that good? So, uh, although they did lose Malcolm Brogdon and Nikola Mirotic uh, this offseason, I expect Milwaukee to be right at the top of the Eastern Conference again next year, and that in large part due to the Greek freaks' greatness. And now the next team, Minnesota Timberwolves. I think their main uh, question I've already covered in today's episode, which surrounds Andrew Wiggins and whether or not he can you know, improve or tall, get, get back to the level that he was at a few years ago. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to uh, get any more into that. Moving on to the New Orleans Pelicans. Now, I think the main question for them obviously has to, has to be about Zion and whether or not he is indeed a generational talent. Now, as you already know, Zion is the most hyped prospect since LeBron James. He is a physical freak of nature unlike anyone I think we've ever seen in the NBA and I think the only question surrounding him is provided he can stay healthy is if he can put his insane size and athleticism and strength to use in the NBA and I think that is almost a no-brainer I mean I think this is one of the easiest questions to answer on this list I think it's almost a given Zion as a generational talent, and he could he could be a borderline all-star right from day one, I think. But especially a few years down the line, we're going to be talking about this guy as a perennial MVP candidate. 
Moving on to the New York Knicks. We ask what's next for them after missing out big time during the summer of 2019. You know, this is an, another another year, another failed off season for the New York Knicks. Another summer of uh, false promises from James Dolan, and as it's just it's just a shame to to see uh, the most, well, I guess, the most well known franchise in. Maybe in American sports, certainly in 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 basketball, you know, the New York Knicks they did make a couple of nice additions this summer, bringing in I think Julius Randle was their best signing and drafting R.J. Barrett. But apart from that, they made a a bunch of weird signings like Alfred Payton, Bobby Portis, and and guys that don't seem to fit with the with the current core of the team. Don't seem to do anything in much of you know roster fit, team cohesion, all that stuff. So it's a bit, it's a bit perplexing, uh, what the Knicks have done. But again, what's new in the James Dolan era? I think just expect more of the same until uh, he finally decides to sell the team, which you know hopefully happens at some point in the future. But um, anyway, I I don't I don't think. Their future is as bleak as some fans would let on. You know, I do think they still have a decent young core with guys like Dennis Smith Jr., R.J. Barrett, like I said, Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson as well. Kevin Knox, if he can, you know, bounce back from a really disappointing rookie season. So they have pieces. It's just the organizational structure is so bad there. I, I, I struggle to be too optimistic about the team's future. Uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder, I think the main question for them is how they're going to approach the Chris Paul situation. Now, again, like with a few of these past teams, um, I've already uh, talked about this question in depth in, in a past episode of the show. So um, if you want to hear me dive deep into that, you can go go check that episode out. Uh, moving on to the Orlando Magic, where I think... The main question for them surrounds Markel Fultz, a kind of forgotten number one overall pick from a few years ago, who, again, I talked about him at length in a, in a previous podcast episode and could kind of ask him the question if he can get his career back on track. And I know I know it's not much, but since, that, since I uh, released that episode, I, I have seen video footage that was released of, of Fultz uh, in the gym training, working on his shot. And I have to say... His form, his shooting form, looked more like it did in college than at any point in his NBA career to this point, which is a very encouraging sign. And if the Magic can get, you know, the Markel Fultz that was that we expected to see when he was drafted, I absolutely expect that the magic can be in in contention for one of the lower tier playoff seeds in the east for sure um for the philadelphia 76ers i think the main question for them is how is their starting lineup going to work t- together so, um seeing what the sixers have done this summer they now have one of the most unorthodox and strange albeit 
large starting lineups in the league. You know, you've got Ben Simmons at point guard, presumably Josh Richardson at the two, Tobias Harris at the three, Al Horford at the four, and then Joel Embiid at the five. It is going to be fascinating to see how this team works together. But if they can figure it out, you could make the case that they have the best starting five in the NBA. Across the board, they have essentially no weaknesses defensively. They have, I would argue, four of the top defenders in the league in in Simmons, Richardson, Horford, and Embiid. Um, And then you throw in Tobias Harris as well, who is certainly serviceable on that end. And then on offense, Ben Simmons is looking to come back with a jump shot. I'm sure you've seen the footage of him uh, you know, rain in threes and turn around jays and fadeaways in, in open gym. Um, got Josh Richardson who kind of broke out offensively a year ago. Tobias Harris who, who can be, who can give you 20 on every, any given night. And then Horford, who's one of the more well-rounded offensive centers in the league, you know, with his passing ability and his ability to sp- stretch the floor. And then Joel Embiid, who is essentially Hakeem Olajuwon 2.0. So if this team can figure it out offensively, Man, they could be the favorites in the Eastern Conference. One other question for them could be, though, do they have enough shooting? Do they have enough perimeter shooting after losing J.J. Redick in the offseason and not really replacing him with anyone? That could be one potential weakness for them going into the next season. But again, we're going to have to see. Next up, the Phoenix Suns uh, looking at if one of their other young players can emerge next to Devin Booker. And obviously the guy I think would be most likely to do this is DeAndre Ayton, um, a guy who I think needs to be better utilized on offense in the, in the Suns system. I think if that happens, I expect Ayton to have a, a, a pretty big breakout season next year or he can become a, a 20 and 10 guy basically right away. Uh, another guy uh, you could look at on their roster as a potential breakout guy is Kelly Oubre Jr., who played his best basketball of his career when he was traded to the Suns last summer. So he'll be looking to build on that momentum going into next year. Couple that, Devin Booker's still going to be the guy. I expect him to take another step next year and provided he's healthy, he can be right near the top uh, in terms of points per game next season. Um, But the Suns, I think, do have an improved core around him, you know, with Ricky Rubio coming to town as well. Um, But yeah, whether or not one of these guys is going to break out offensively next to Book is, is the question. Now, the Portland Trailblazers, I think the main question for them is, has this team reached its ceiling, especially its backcourt? Now, what we saw in the playoffs last year from Dame and CJ is certainly, I think, the best, is certainly the best we've ever seen them play. Whether or not they can build on that and improve, that's questionable, but I still think that they can be just as good, you know, at least as good as they were in the playoffs a year ago. And then you look at the the rest of this team, um, they did lose Maurice Harkless and Alpha Rukaminu, but, um, you know, guys like Rodney Hood looked to step in to fill the void. Also, Yusuf Nurkic is going to be coming back from injury, so... You know, if he can regain his form from a year ago and keep healthy, that can that can uh, help their chances of making noise in the playoffs. And they also brought in Hassan Whiteside, who, 
you know, if if he's in the right place mentally and he can buy into the Blazers' culture, he could be a real addition to this team as well. It'll be interesting to see how he works with Nurkic when when they come back. But um, either way, I still think the Blazers are going to be right there. They're going to be making some noise in the Western Conference. I don't see them as a finals contender. A f- I, I see them more as a as a conference semifinals, you know, second round sort of team. But, you know, that's not a bad thing by any stretch in this in this Western Conference uh, that we're going to have next season. Uh, moving to another Western Conference team, the Sacramento Kings. I think the main question for them is do they have enough to make the playoffs in the West? Now, they, they nearly did a season ago. They were... They were right in the mix for much of the year, you know, with breakout stars De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Heald. They also had Marvin Bagley, who had a very impressive rookie season, and he'll be looking to build upon uh, his production this upcoming season. And they also they they brought back Harrison Barnes in free agency, albeit for way too much money. But Barnes can still be, I think, a a, a very solid starting caliber small forward. You know, he can he can hit threes. He's an efficient scorer, um, and he just needs to work a little bit on his all around game because he's also he's also a good he's a good defender as well. Um, all in all. I think the Kings do have enough to maybe compete for for an eighth seed, although it is going to be tough given the amount of teams that will be fighting for the playoffs in in the Western Conference. Another team that's looking to compete for probably a lower-tier playoff seed is the San Antonio Spurs. And I think the question with them is whether or not they're going to be content with just making the playoffs. You know, I mean, they've made the playoffs for 22 consecutive seasons. And with DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge still on the roster, they they still look to be a a playoff lock this year, especially with, you know, Derek White, I'm assuming, uh, going to be coming back better this year. And also with the return of DeJounte Murray as well, you know. Um, But... Even 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 with all of that, and still having the best coach of all time in Greg Popovich, I don't think that that that's not going to be enough to compete with the the better teams in the Western Conference. So the question is going to become: How content are the Spurs going to be with their placement next season, and will we potentially see some moves maybe before the trade deadline next year? That that's a little bit up in the air. Um, moving on to the reigning NBA champs, the Toronto Raptors, who, although they did lose Kawhi Leonard a season ago, they still have Pascal Siakam. So I think the main question for them is whether or not Pascal Siakam can take another leap this upcoming season. Now, I think he can, given that he'll be... He'll be given a much bigger offensive role next season. He'll be a- he'll be asked to do a lot more, and he has all the talent, all the athletic gifts to do exactly that. Especially with the fact that the Raptors, they're they're going to be playing with very low expectations next year. You know, nobody's expecting them to make the noise they did last year, and lots of people don't really have them as a playoff team. You know, that they could be. Uh, fighting to make it um but if, if if pascal develops and makes another leap like i and a lot of others are expecting him to i i do expect them to to sneak into the playoffs um 
Uh, but it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see uh, just how good Siakam's going to be when when uh, we next see him play next next season. Now moving on to one of the more interesting teams, I think, heading into heading into next year and a dark horse contender for sure in the Western Conference, and that's the Utah Jazz. Now, I think they're definitely a top four team in the West. The question is whether or not they can compete with the with the likes of the Lakers and the Clippers. I actually think they're going to be better than the Rockets. That's just because, you know, of the all the questions surrounding how Westbrook and Harden will fit together. Um but you look at this Jazz team and they have done incredibly well in the offseason, you know. They did lose Ricky Rubio, but they brought in Mike Conley. Bojan Bogdanovic, Jeff Green, Emmanuel Moutier, and Ed Davis this summer. That is that is incredibly impressive, you know, adding a, a, a star point guard in, in Conley, a lights-out shooter and scorer in, in Bogdanovic, and they really improved their bench depth with guys like Green, Moutier, and Davis. You know, add that to the core of Mitchell and Gobert and Joe Ingles, and you have one of the more well-rounded, balanced teams in the league that I reckon they could even be a top three seed in the West next year. And a lot of that does depend on if Mitchell can take the next step, which I expect him to. I expect him to be a a first-time All-Star next year. And again, Rudy Gobert locking down the paint. There's just... The Jazz has so much going for them next season, and I expect them to make a ton of noise next year. And... Finally, the final team we've got is the Washington Wizards. And although they're now kind of an afterthought of a franchise and really not really going anywhere, they don't have much of a direction, I think the main question for them surrounds their star, Bradley Beal, and whether or not he's going to be on the team, you know, um, for long. Uh, The Bradley Beal trade talks have been swirling since last offseason, but I think there's a there's a pretty high possibility that they could pull the trigger on a deal before the trade deadline this year. Um, obviously, it depends on uh, how well the team's doing or how, how much they're struggling and how happy Beal is. We've heard that he's that he's unsure about signing an extension with the Wizards, which does lend some uh, credibility to these to these trade rumors um so i think the main question is whether or not he will be traded and if so where he will be traded to so i'd like you i'd like you to let me know on twitter again at around the arc pod uh if you think beal will be traded this season and if so give me some give me some trade ideas i might i might do this as a as a topic in the in the next couple of weeks but i'd love to, i'd love to hear your thoughts on potential bradley beal trades that that could take place this upcoming season and with that guys we made it through all 30 nba teams uh sorry sorry if i if i rushed a little bit uh in that topic but um yeah as always i hope you i hope you enjoyed the episode do feel free to leave a review um five stars of course appreciated but yeah leave your thoughts comments suggestions questions anything um i'd love to hear you from you and with that i will see you back here again next time all right 
See you guys. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.